Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Okay. Well, Shabbat Shalom. We've been in a extended series on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, today is the last installment of this series. It's part 11, if you've been counting. And uh, we started looking at self-control, uh, at the fruit of self-control last time, the last of the, of the nine fruits of the Spirit. And today we're going to finish up uh, uh, on part two of, of looking at the fruit of self-control. And today I want us to focus on the aspect of temptation and how to overcome it through walking in the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. And to get at this theme, we're going to focus on a very famous passage today, way, way back in in Bechashit in Genesis chapter 3, the first seven verses. So turn with me to Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God said, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you'll die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So we see here the attack of temptation uh, way back in in Genesis chapter 3. Now when we think of temptation, we tend to think of a very explicit uh, physical sins, like the temptation to overeat, the temptation to overdrink, the temptation of drugs, the temptation of sex and, and pornography, uh, and the like. But there's really a lot of other temptations as well. There's the temptations uh, towards pride, the temptation uh, to give in to despair, the temptation to dishonesty, uh, etc. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful to me, but I won't be mastered by anything. Paul, Paul's pointing out here that anything whether it's technically lawful or not, can become an addiction. And therefore, it becomes your master. Uh, And that's what temptation is all about on the overhead. A temptation is about something, whether or not inherently good or bad, that becomes your master. And therefore, it is bad. Paul says, something may be lawful to me, but I won't be mastered by it. And a lot of us know that we're being mastered by things. And we try to to rationalize it uh, or minimize it uh, or deny it. But it's mastering and enslaving us. It's a stronghold. Now, when we talk about temptation, we also need to talk about Hasatan, Satan, and and spiritual warfare. Now, when we mention this, most secular people today, of course, will will ridicule us, right? Uh, Even some self-proclaimed believers uh, claim, well, no one believes in a personal devil anymore. You know, how primitive, uh, how medieval. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where we read, The serpent said to the woman, 
Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree that's in the garden? So we see right from the beginning, temptation involves the serpent, uh, the dragon, the devil, Satan. And Yeshua says in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my congregation and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the spiritual opposition we face uh, here in Ephesians 6, Paul, Paul calls them in, in Greek the cosmocrateroi. It's a pretty wild name. Well, these are the principalities and the powers. Uh, the world rulers of, of this present darkness. You know, when Daniel and, and Daniel 10 is praying and asking God for an answer, after, after several days, an angel finally shows up. And the angel says, Daniel, I would have been here 21 days ago, but the prince of Persia kept me from coming to you. I had to do battle with him. Uh, and Michael, the archangel, came and he helped me. And now I've come through an answer to your prayers. This is a great illustration of the reality of spiritual warfare. The prince of Persia is this head demonic power over the nation of Persia, modern-day Iran. Uh, a regionally based demonic force. And later the same angel says that after fighting the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece will come. The Bible teaches there are geographically based demonic forces over each nation. Uh, uh, cosmocrateroi on the, on the overhead. Uh, cosmos uh, means cosmic. Crateroi uh, means a strong man uh, or tyrant. So these powers and principalities, they're literally cosmic tyrants. Uh, they're, they're regionally based. And they try to set up a, a kind of spiritual dome uh, over a city or a state or a nation. And they say they try to stir up the pride and the ego and the carnality, hear me well, that's already within us. Uh, and they set us against each other. They try to get us mad at God, uh, mad at each other, mad at ourselves. Uh, and and uh, they try to stir things up as much as possible. And Daniel, through his prayers, he, he punches a hole uh, in this demonic dome uh, over the nation of Persia. And the angel is able to get through and present the prophetic message to Daniel. Now, a lot of people refuse to believe in the reality of this unseen spiritual realm. But you cannot even begin to understand what the Bible says about temptation until you understand who it is and who it was who said, did God really say? Who was the serpent? It's pretty clear in the scriptures that this is Satan, Hasatan, the adversary. So we need to address uh, what I'm going to say is the illogical and irrational knee-jerk bias uh, that modern Western man has against the existence of an evil supernatural realm. Modern Western secular people have an anti-supernatural bias. Now, interestingly, uh, uh, many of these people say, they, they, yeah, I believe in God, or I, at least I believe in the possibility that, that God might exist. But if there can be, as they admit, a good supernatural reality, why can't there also exist an evil supernatural realm? It's just an illogical and irrational bias that refuses to entertain the possibility of personal supernatural evil. This modern anti-supernatural bias was first just pushed during the European Enlightenment in the 1700s, championed by philosophers such as David Hume. Uh, and on the overhead here, David Hume said, said this. He said, science has now proven, quote-unquote, that miracles can't happen. <laughs> he says, we now know that nature is uniform. So therefore, whatever you read in the, whenever you read in the Bible an account of a, of a miracle, 
we now know that there must always be a natural explanation for it because nature is uniform and therefore miracles can't happen. And for the last 300 years, this philosophy has ruled the roost in academia and the media and the so-called knowledge class. But in the last 20 to 30 years, that, that consensus is beginning to break up. And people are beginning to realize that what Hume said itself was absolutely irrational. Uh, because uh, even though scientists could say, we've never seen a miracle, it doesn't prove miracles have never happened or that they couldn't happen in the future. In fact, today, scientific philosophers admit we don't even know what a law of nature is. And there's an obvious bias uh, because when you say miracles can't happen because nature is uniform, all, what you really mean is, what you, all you're really saying is, miracles can't happen because miracles can't happen. <laughs> it's, it's just begging the question in this endless circle. <laughs> if there's a God, then miracles are natural. If there's a God, the existence of angelic beings is natural. And if there's a positive supernatural, the existence of a negative supernatural uh, is not irrational, but it's perfect, perfectly natural. Here's a, here's a great example. The Bible and also this famous Greek historian named Herodotus both have an explanation, two very different explanations for what happened when the Assyrian king and general Sennacherib uh, besieged Jerusalem and he was ultimately defeated. Uh, he surrounded Jerusalem with this overwhelming force. He outnumbered the Jews 10 to 1. Uh, and all we really know for sure that historians say is for some strange reason his army was defeated. Uh, and they ran home in utter disgrace. And they say, no one's sure why. Well, Second Kings 19 tells us why. <laughs> it tells us the angel of the Lord came down and slew the Assyrian army right in their camp. Look at Second Kings 19, verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all these dead bodies. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh. And stayed there. Now Herodotus, this famous secular Greek historian, he puts forth this different explanation. Here's a quote about this from C.S. Lewis. We'll put it on the overhead. C.S. Lewis says, When the Old Testament says that Sennacherib's invasion was stopped by an angel, stopped by angels, Second Kings 19, and when Herodotus says it was stopped by an invasion of mice <laughs> who came and ate up all the bowstrings of the Assyrian army, <laughs> A truly open-minded man will be on the side of the angels. <laughs> Unless you start by begging the question that there's no such thing as the supernatural, and you cannot prove that, that that's a faith proposition, then there's nothing intrinsically unlikely in the existence of angels or in the action ascribed to them. But mice just don't do these things. <laughs> do you see what he's saying? This is amazing. How do you know there's no supernatural? You don't. That's just your guess. That's your secular leap of faith. Science cannot prove there's no supernatural. Science, by definition, can only deal with what's observable uh, and what's measurable well, with the natural. Science cannot study the supernatural. It, it doesn't claim to study the supernatural. And therefore, if you cannot scientifically prove there's no supernatural, it's merely a faith proposition. And C.S. Lewis says... Let's look at the evidence. If you look at the evidence, what's more likely? That thousands of mice suddenly appeared in the Assyrian camp and it ate up all their bowstrings? Or that the angel of the Lord intervened as recorded in Scripture? Uh, 
If there is a God, then it's absolutely natural for there to be angels. And who do things like what's recorded here in Second Kings 19. And if there's a good supernatural, uh, if there are good supernatural beings, then there can also be evil supernatural beings. So whether you believe in demonic forces or not, either way is a faith proposition. And even the philosophers of science are now finally beginning to, to agree with this. You see, it's, it's silly to say that religious people can believe in devils, but we scientific people can't. The philosophers of science now acknowledge there's no way to prove or disprove this. So this anti-supernatural bias is slowly beginning to be recognized by, by some of the, the knowledge classes. But it's still not recognized by the average secular man or woman uh, on the street. The average secular person still says, oh my God, you really don't believe in the devil, do you? But I'd like to ask them, well, well do you believe in God or, or the possibility of God? And if they say yes, I'd like to then ask them, why do you believe in the possibility of a personal supernatural good divine being but deny the possibility of a personal evil supernatural being you're just picking and choosing what you want from the bible this is just your personal wish fulfillment you know it sounds like you're you're just inventing your own religion uh, one that makes you comfortable and cozy and there's no basis for it and in fact all the evidence is against it you can just can you can you just look out in the world today and tell that if there is a supernatural realm, that it must be all goodness and sweetness and love. <laughs> no, and there can't be any demons or any evil. Of course not. You look out in the world today, you see plenty of evil and wickedness and darkness. So if you can overcome, the te- uh, overcome temptation and grow in the fruit of self-control, it's imperative you understand there is a devil. And there are legions of his followers, so the powers and principalities of the air. On the overhead. Now, secondly, there are now two equal but opposite errors into which you can fall concerning this demonic realm. There's superstition, and what I'm going to call substition. Superstition is overbelief. Substition is, is underbelief. And most of us, whether you're a believer or not, we fall into one of these two errors. Superstition is this unhealthy overinterest in the demonic, attributing too much power to them. Substition is a disbelief in the demonic realm altogether, or thinking that they have no influence on me, uh, and believing that oh, well, I, can, I can just ignore the, the possibility that they exist. You, know, you say, well, maybe in the darkest jungles of South America or Africa or Southeast Asia, these demons might exist, but it's irrelevant for my life. So you have superstition and you have substition. I'll just give you this analogy. The devil is like a blow snake. You know how a blow snake deals with his enemies? When you first come up to a blow snake, uh, it puffs itself up. It gets really big and mean and ugly looking and tries to scare you off. Now, if that doesn't work, he sucks himself in, he flips over, and plays dead. (laughs) There's only two ways he can deal with you. He can try to get you into a type of, of superstitious, you know, approach or a, a substitious approach. The devil is the same way. As Yeshua followers, we do believe in the existence of the devil uh, because we believe in the authority of the scriptures. But there are some believers who are overly superstitious about the devil and tend to attribute too much power to him. 
They tend to say, whenever any problem happens, uh, the devil made me do it, or oh, the devil did it to me. Uh, and the answer for everything is that I need an exorcism. I need someone to come and command these demons to come out of me. The other extreme, substition, is when as a believer you look at all your problems this exact same way as any secular therapist would look at them. As being functions only uh, of your hormones, uh, or your physiology, or your family background, or your prior life conditioning. And you overlook the fact that your, prob- your problems are also, in part, battlegrounds of spiritual warfare. Important, significant spiritual warfare. On the overhead, superstition underestimates the role of the sinful flesh. You know, the devil's like an instrumental musician, uh, but he's not a singer. He needs an instrument. Uh, he cannot make music on his own. Uh, he needs a piano. He needs a violin. He needs an instrument. So as a believer filled with the Holy Spirit, the devil cannot effectively get at you unless you give him something. So, for example, look at Ephesians 4:26. It says, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. Or look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. Paul says, an elder must not be a recent convert, lest he become conceited and fall in under the same judgment as the devil. Paul saying, don't put a rookie in a position of spiritual authority, or he'll become prideful and fall into the snare of the devil. So whether it's anger or pride or some other sin, the enemy is given entrance and permission to attack you whenever you give him a foothold. Uh, when you open the door to his influence spiritually. So, for example, you look at the top of a grand piano and you sing a note into it. Let's say you sing a B, which I won't do because I can't sing on tune. But just let's say you sing the note a B. All the, all the strings in that grand piano will stay silent except the, the B string. The B string will vibrate and, and you'll hear an echo. Because the sound that the string is tuned to matches the sound of your voice on the overhead. In the same way, as a believer, the devil can't make you do things but he, on his own, but he finds strings in your life that he can play his tune on. And therefore, there's a, there's a tendency among many of you, because you tend to underestimate the deep and compulsive power and presence of sin in your life. Many of you tend to believe uh, that your addictions uh, or and, and despair and depression and anger and jealousy and pride and lust must somehow come from the outside. Oh, my parents did it to me. Uh, or, or my ex-spouse. Uh, or the devil did it to me. Uh, or my chemistry is doing it to me. But of course, it could never be the fault of my own sinful self, right? <laughs> it could never be, uh, we, we say, my own sinful, egotistical, selfish pride that creates these open doors for the demonic to enter in and to attack me. But the truth is, the devil plays you like a violin. Our flesh is far more devious and far more strong and deceptive and self-delusional and in denial than we care to admit. The point is, the devil and the flesh are always involved together. To say the devil did this to me, all on his own, is to underestimate the role of your own flesh. 
and to discount your need for the fruit of the spirit of self-control. So we're often prone to superstition, which likes to blame the devil for, for our, our own sins and our own weaknesses uh, and our own works of the flesh. But on the other hand, it, it, it's substitutious to think the devil is not involved at all. It's naive and it's substitious to not believe that he's out there playing a demonic tune on the strings that you give him to use. So superstition and substitution, we all tend to fall in, in, into one of these two extremes or the other. And most believers, over the course of our believing life, we tend to bounce back and forth between these two extremes. Sometimes we get with a crowd that, that, that's uh, superstitious, that tends to believe there's a demon lurking behind every rock, behind all of our problems, uh, and all of our character flaws and our sins, there's a devil lurking. Uh, and therefore, the answer to everything is spiritual warfare and deliverance. And then sometimes we bounce to the other end of the spectrum. We hang out with a, a skeptical, rational crowd, it says all our problems are, are rational or, or have a behavioral basis uh, in psychology or, or sociology or, or biochemistry. And that there's no other dimension. So it's hard to keep a proper biblical balance. The serpent declared, has God said. Eve had something in her that the serpent was playing. But the serpent was involved as well. It took both of them for the first sin to occur. So I want to now look at the ways that he attacks us and then how we defend ourselves. First, the attack. Genesis 3, 5 on the overhead. Satan says to Eve, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan says to Eve, you'll be like God, which is a lie. It's a lie. Temptation always comes from a lie. Satan tempts through lies because he's a liar. Look at John eight forty four. Yeshua says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Second Timothy 2 verse 25 says, uh, God might grant that they might repent and know the truth. And be delivered from the snare of the devil. You're not in a snare if you've got the truth. The truth is what sets you free. Distortion puts you in bondage. And self-control, therefore, is a matter of getting in touch with the reality of God's truth. Temptation and addiction has to do with various distortions in your life. So, for example, in Acts chapter 5, Peter's talking to Ananias. In Acts 5 verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? Satan is always connected to a lie. In the wilderness, Satan tempts Yeshua. What happens whenever Yeshua is tempted? In every situation, Satan's trying to subtly inject a distorted view of God. Satan says to Yeshua, you hungry? Why would a good God ever let you be in this situation, Yeshua? Why don't you just turn these stones into bread? In other words, why don't you go on your own power Yeshua, instead of relying on your father. And that's a great temptation at the moment for Yeshua, because he hasn't eaten in 40 days. But his mission was to come here and be our representative, and to live a perfect life as a human being. And we humans are supposed to depend on God for everything. So Yeshua doesn't do it. (laughs) He resists the devil. So what does he say? How does he resist the devil? He quotes the word of God. Matthew 4, 4, he says, it is written, 
Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yeshua deals with every temptation by speaking the truth as revealed in the word of God. If you look at your life, you'll see that what binds you in sin are lies. But if you immerse, but if you immerse yourself in God's word and remind yourself that Yeshua is my savior, that I'm going to rule and reign with him forever one day, then that, this truth can defeat the lies that your flesh and the world system and Satan are trying to whisper in your ear. Remind yourself, as revealed in the word of God, that the Lord has filled me with his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah, and that I'm to walk in his love and power and righteousness and resist the lies to try to get me to feel sorry for myself uh, and to make excuses for myself and to focus on myself. If you entertain the lies of the enemy that opens a door, opens a door to temptation, the temptation to be bitter, the temptation to be resentful, the temptation to feel entitled, the temptation to be depressed and and feel sorry for yourself, these temptations come from lies. You must expose and challenge and refute these lies if you were to have victory over sin in your life. John Nevis was this missionary in Korea in the early 1900s. He encountered a lot of demonic uh, possession administering to the Koreans. He tried all sorts of methods commanding them to leave, but eventually he found one deliverance method that always worked. You know what it was? He sat down and he read scripture to the demonized man or woman. He read scripture, he read the word of God. It is more powerful than any two-edged sword. It is the sword of the Spirit. John Nevis, this missionary, he understood that the power of the devil is lies. And that the power over temptation, the power of the fruit of the Spirit of self-control, is the truth. And that the truth overcomes the lie. Temptation is your flesh or the devil getting you to believe lies. So how do you grow in the fruit of self-control? You need to identify the lies that assault you and overcome them with the truth of the word of God. On the overhead, the number one lie in all of our lives is to claim that sin will fulfill you. It's at the heart of how Satan tempted Eve in the garden. The number one lie is that, that sin is sweeter and healthier and more natural than obedience. The lie is that the sin you're tempted with will make you happy. And if you don't do it, you'll miss out. You'll be putting unnatural and unhealthy and overly restrictive and counterproductive limits on your life. In Genesis 3, the number one lie of the enemy was that if you obey, you'll be held back. You'll be cutting yourself off from so much potential. But if you reach out and take the fruit, you'll become like God. In fact, it's the opposite. For taking the fruit, Adam and Eve tried to take the place of God. They became their own God with disastrous results. So this is the, is the basic lie that sin will fulfill you. And this lie is constantly operating in your heart in subtle and not so subtle ways. The lie takes many forms, such as, for example, the lie that if I'm obedient to God, if I don't look out for number one, uh, then I'll probably have problems in my business life or, or problems in my relationships the lie says, yeah, it's okay to be nice. It's, it's nice to be a little bit religious, no, a little bit ethical and moral. Uh, but if you go too much, if you go too extreme, 
you're going to miss out. That was the number one lie, and Satan is still using it on you today. The enemy says, don't be so devout. Uh, Live a bit. There'll be plenty of time to get religious later on in life. And if that's your attitude, that I'll come to and really follow Yeshua later on, you are looking at a false Yeshua. If you believe that disobedience is more delicious and satisfying and more life-giving than Yeshua himself, then you're looking at Yeshua as mere fire insurance. You're looking at Yeshua through the lens of the lie. The reason to come to and to follow Yeshua is not for fire insurance, but because he is your life. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life and the overhead. And if you don't see Yeshua as your life, you cannot come to him. You cannot come to him as mere fire insurance, as a sugar daddy, because that's not who he is. But that's the lie that operates deep inside you. That operates deep inside of all of us. It's the base lie out of which all other lies come. The second point about temptation, how the devil gets us to sin, is to typically start with small sins. Uh, to lead us astray bit by bit. Notice what Satan does in the garden. Look at Genesis 3 verse 1. He says to, uh, he says to, uh, to Eve, has God said you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? So first, Satan has exaggerated. God's command wasn't you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden, but only you couldn't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. So first, he exaggerates, and secondly, he impugns the character of God. He says, did God really say this? Implying that it's some kind of unreasonable, tyrannical, self-serving command. Satan is subtly insinuating that God's not fair. And then the next thing you know, interestingly, is that Eve starts exaggerating as well. uh, Adding that, oh, by the way, you can't touch the tree either. So Satan's great deception starts with little sins, subtle sins. And that's how he works in your life and my life as well. And as I said, Satan's subtle attack on God's character then leads, leads Eve to exaggerate the prohibition. So on the overhead, the first sin is not when you disobey the command. Hear me well. The first sin is not when you disobey the command. The first sin is when you begin to resent the command. That's the beginning. Because you're beginning, you're beginning to put yourself on the throne and starting to say to yourself, well, this command doesn't seem practical or fair or reasonable to me. And the overhead, again, this command is getting in the way of something that I want uh, to be or to do. This command is too strict and restraining. I need to get out from under it. So the first sin is when Eve begins to resent God's command and begins to exaggerate it, making it worse than it really is. And sin typically begins small. Uh, it's subtle on the overhead. So look at, look at all of Eve's sins. You've got five sins here that Eve commits. Number one, she bought the insinuation that, that God was unfair, so she begins to resent God's commandment. Number two, then she begins to desire the forbidden fruit. Uh, she fantasizes. Uh, she looks at the fruit and looks at it and looks at it and, and, and ponders it. She sees, she sees that it's good. What does that mean? It means that she sat there and imagined what would it be like to eat it. She turned it over and over in her mind entertaining the thought and the act. Number three leads to the third sin was she decided I'm going to go ahead and eat it. 
Number four, she actually does eat it. And then five, she gets Adam to do it as well. So do you see here what I'm calling the anatomy of sin? It usually starts small. Typically when you begin to resent one of God's commands. When you unconsciously begin to resent God telling you how to live your life on the overhead. But at the mark of a godly person is that they love for God to tell them what to do. Look at Psalm 1 verse 2. Blessed is the one whose delight is the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The godly man, the godly woman loves to have the Lord tell them what to do. They love to meditate on and to obey the law of God. Now, sexual sin, likewise, has several stages to it. And this is where the fruit of the spirit of self-control comes in. Because sexual sin always starts with a thought. A temptation occurs to you. Okay, then what do you do with that temptation? And Martin Luther said, you can't stop the birds from flying around your head. But you don't have to let them build a nest in your hair. <laughs> so a thought pops in your head. And, but then you need to weigh it. Hmm. And if it's a sinful thought, do not entertain it. Because that's where sin begins. Remember Achan, uh, the soldier in, in, in Joshua's army who took some of the loot when they conquered Je- uh, Jericho uh, against God's command? Achan went into Jericho and he says this in Joshua 7 verse 21. He says, when I saw in the plunder... A beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them, and I took them. Now, what does it mean when he says, I saw these things? How would he know how much the gold weighed? How would he know how many, exactly how many coins there were? Or, or how beautiful this robe was? He was assessing it in his mind. He, he was pondering it. He was thinking about it. He was actually literally handling it. Uh, he was literally counting it uh, and weighing it. That was the first step. And in doing so, he was already resenting the command. That was the second step, to resent it. The third step was fantasy. He thought more and more about these forbidden things and uh, how they, that they were, they were under God's ban. Uh, and the more he thought about them, the more he wanted them. The fourth step was what I'm going to call fantasy helps. Most obvious example of this today would be pornography. Uh, Earl pointed out last week that the, the sin of lusting in your heart, Yeshua says, is the equivalent to, to adultery and fornication. The fifth step is the action. In Achan's case, he's taking these objects the Lord had put under the ban. In King David's case, it was committing adultery with Bathsheba, murdering her husband, Uriah, to cover it up. Why did David do this? How did he get there? How did it start? We're told this in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the springtime, when kings go off to war, David said, Joab, out with the army. But David remained in Jerusalem. David stayed home. He was being lazy. He was home with too much idle time on his hands uh, when he should have been out on the battlefield with his men. Secondly, then he sees Bathsheba uh, bathing on the roof of her house. Look at verse 2, 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around the roof of his palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. There's nothing in the scripture there by mistake. Every word is there for a purpose. It adds, the woman was very beautiful. What does it mean that David saw how beautiful she was? It means he looked. 
and looked and looked at the naked woman. And he weighed it in his mind. So first, he had too much idle time on his hands. Secondly, he looks and looks and looks some more. Third, uh, uh, he fantasizes. He imagines being with her. And then fourth, he acts. He takes her. Do you see the progression? We need to see how temptation progresses. Bit by bit by bit, so you can cut it off from the start. In the bud. Before it progresses to sin. By breaking it down like this, and identifying its steps like we're doing, and then putting, then you can put roadblocks and preventions in place each step of the way. Through God's word, through fleeing from youthful lusts, uh, and temptations like, like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. Uh, and this is how you develop the fruit of the spirit of self-control. This is the bottom line, as we're going to begin to close up here. You will do whatever your strongest desire is at the time. You will do what's on video in your mind versus what's only on audio. So let's say you're tempted to have sex with someone who's not your spouse or tempted to view pornography. You will have the sex or you will view the porn if you have on video in your mind things like, oh, how lonely I am or, oh, how good this is going to feel. And you have an audio only something like, thou shalt not commit a sexual immorality. But if you want sexual self-control, you must put on video things like 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor, glorify God in your bodies. And think about Yeshua coming into the temple, which is God's house, his father's house. And he throws out the money changers. Why? He says this in John 2, verse 16. Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it's written, the zeal for your house will consume me. And now where does Yeshua live today? He lives in you. And now the zeal for the purity of your life consumes him. If you're a believer, Yeshua lives in you. He sees everything you're thinking and everything you're doing. It's broadcast to him in 3D, high definition, living color. He's living within you. And he's a pure eyes than can withhold iniquity. And what are you showing him? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So, so what am I doing here? I'm preaching to myself. Likewise, when temptation comes, you've got to preach to yourself. You've got to put it on video. You've got to envision the prize. Uh, envision the crown. Bring to mind God's word at that moment. At the moment that temptation presents itself. What are you making the Lord look at? Say to yourself at the moment of temptation, here is Yeshua dying on the cross for me so that I would not do this. And now I'm throwing his blood back in his face when I do this. Do you know how to draw upon these biblical truths? That's how you grow in the fruit of the spirit of self-control. You've got to know the word of God. You've got to know it so well 
You can switch it on in the middle of your temptation. And so, and to refocus your mind and overcome it. Because this is the sword of the Spirit. But to work, you've got to wield the sword. To make it part of your daily life. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. I'm going to pray and then close with some music. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. I want to thank you, Lord, for filling us with your spirit. The spirit of Messiah as we trust in the work of Yeshua, your son. You tell us the evidence of the infilling of, of your spirit is the fruit of the spirit in our life. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's in our life the characters of love and joy and peace. Patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Lord, help us to walk in this fruit of self-control. To overcome temptation. To overcome the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Lord, we want a supernaturally changed heart. Not just a morally restrained heart. Lord Yeshua, today give us your spirit. Lord, hallelujah. Fill us with the desire to walk in your ways, to be more like you. To love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. With all of our passion and desire and priority and resources. And to be immersed in your word. Help us not to resent your commandments. Because your commandments are good and holy and right. Help us not to entertain or to fantasize about temptations, but to resist them immediately, to command the enemy to flee. Lord, help me to be so immersed in your word that it immediately comes to mind when temptation strikes. Lord, I want to be so immersed in your word that when I'm struck, I bleed scripture. Lord, train my hands for war to wield the sword of the spirit which is your word. We want to be like you, Yeshua. When you were tempted in the wilderness, you met every temptation with it is written, it is written, it is written. Lord, help us to be so filled with your word that it's on video in our minds. And to the temptation, it's only on audio. For we pray this all in your holy name, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.